What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As an educator, one of the things that people like to talk to me about is the fact that many schools don't teach cursive anymore. Personally, the demise of cursive in schools has been of very little importance to me since through a series of unfortunate events, I never learned how to write cursive. And even today, the only thing I write with cursive letters is my very crazy signature. But even though I'm personally ambivalent to cursive writing does not mean that I still do not advocate for writing by hand. At a recent conference where several children's book authors attended, I was surprised to find that many of them still do a great deal of their writing by hand. In fact, I realized that I do quite a bit of my own writing with a pen and paper first before I turn to the computer. So it seems that in the adult world, writing by hand is still alive and well. But does that mean it should be in our kids' world? Research seems to indicate that yes, it should. Studies have shown that writing by hand activates many regions of the brain related to memory and comprehension. This means that we may be able to learn things better when we write them by hand. But while we can still champion writing by hand, we can't make this an either or occurrence. Learning to create text fluently with a keyboard is also a significant skill. In fact, research shows that there are correlations between handwriting and keyboarding skills. So it seems that instead of focusing on one or the other, the benefit would be to focus on helping children to develop good written communication skills both by hand and with a computer. Because here at Rachel's World, we know that being able to use the written word in print and digitally to interact with the world is a very positive thing. If you're the kind of person who cares about children, learning and literacy, you'll have a concern for what I'm about to say. Research shows that interest in science and math typically drops off beginning in 4th grade. What's up with that? Rachel Wadham welcomes BYU chemistry professor Rebecca Sansom to this episode of Worlds Awaiting. Sansom has a particular interest in women in science who have made an impact in the world. Rebecca is co-founder of BYU's Chem Camp for elementary aged students. She served 8 years as a high school science teacher in Massachusetts and Utah. Sansom has master's degrees in chemistry and education from Harvard University and Southern Utah University and is pursuing her doctorate in educational inquiry, measurement, and evaluation. Here is Rebecca Sansom with Rachel. We're in studio with Rebecca today. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about girls and science. I think that this is a very important topic, and we often hear a lot about it. It's in the popular news all the time, and they talk about things that, you know, there's not enough women in science. We really need to get women in science. So what what are your thoughts on that issue? Let's start generally. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm all for women in science. <laughs> Being a woman in science myself, I'm definitely an advocate for that. I think, um, 
Gosh, it's sort of a big topic. Uh, fundamentally, though, it's really a social construct, this idea that girls maybe aren't as good at science or aren't as interested in science as boys. And when we look at data, what we see is that at the elementary school, up until about fourth grade, girls and boys are equally interested in science and equally enthusiastic about it. And then somewhere between fourth and eighth grade, girls start to become less interested. Um, Boys lose interest too, but girls lose interest at a faster rate. And there's probably just a whole host of causes for why that happens. So one thing I want to talk about is the the story of science, the history of science. And computer science is actually a really great example of this. A lot of people don't know that computer the computer science was really invented by women. Grace Hopper is a famous pioneer in in computer science. People don't know her name. And um, these people got a man on the moon, you know, using using their brains. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. And, um, you know, it's a story that we don't hear. We hear about the astronauts. We hear about the men who've, who've made history with, with science and math. And we don't necessarily hear about the women. So I, I think that issue of role models and having role models that you can see doing mm-hmm. what you're doing is a really important thing. You also run a a summer program where you do work with um, with students and help them to learn science. And in that, you have some of the students here at the university, particularly the female students, participate in that mm-hmm. program. So, how does that provide mentorship for these? Young yeah, women? that's a great a great point. So, we ran the first ever chem camp this summer, um, and it was a fantastic experience. We had kids here who were between fourth and sixth grade, so we kind of targeted that group that that's where the interest kind of starts to drop off. And um, we made sure that we had equal numbers of girls and boys participating in the camp. Um, so there wouldn't be that sense, well, gosh, I'm already a minority um, as a girl, a fourth grade girl uh, who who likes science. And then also we had some undergraduate science majors act as the counselors. And um, I think it was fantastic. So the whole, I mean, I'm really pleased with the way the camp turned out. The kids had a great experience. I think the counselors learned a lot. And I think it's so powerful for young women. Um, you know, I guess these are these are still children, <laughs> but but <laughs> they're young women young, too. <laughs> they're, they're very young girls. It's important for girls to um, to have role models that they see that are happy and successful and interested in science. And I mean, I think each person on the earth has their own unique talents and abilities, and um, we we do nobody a service by hiding our abilities. I think we bring glory to God by by engaging with the things, that, with our aptitudes and with the things that are interesting and that we're passionate about. And so I, I think that for girls to see women who are passionate about science and, and making a difference in the world is so powerful. Bravo. Amen. I totally agree that seeing bringing forth those talents, whatever they are, is is really a powerful, powerful thing. And I think it's really unfortunate, particularly for women and girls, that sometimes they, you know, suppress these talents mm-hmm. because of this societal construct mm-hmm. that says you shouldn't be or you can't. You alluded earlier that you said there are multiple things that, that oh, yeah. make this possible. So is there another issue that you'd like to bring up? Yeah, let's lines? see. Well, um, you know, it, there's different things that happen sort of at different stages in child development. And I've, I previously taught in the high school, so I worked a lot with high school students. And now at the university, you see all of these different social 
constructs happening. So starting in about middle school, girls start to lose interest in math and science. Carol Dweck talks about a growth mindset. I'm sure you're you're familiar. Um, And one of the ways that we... um, socialize girls is to say, oh, you're such a good girl. You did such a good job or um, you're, you're so good. You're so smart. Um, and, and to boys, we really um, treat them more as we acknowledge their effort. So, for example, it's hard for a boy to sit still. So we say, oh, you did such a good job paying attention in class today or you did such a good job working on this assignment. And so we praise that effort as opposed to the outcome in in boys. And it's a it's it's a well-documented fact that this is a difference in the way that we, we talk to children. And when girls start to encounter something that's a little bit more difficult, like they get to middle school math and maybe they're in algebra and it's harder than what they had done in elementary school, well, all of a sudden they're not the smart one anymore because they didn't get the same outcome that they expected. And they're also not used to saying, oh, well, I didn't get that yet. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep practicing. So so this concept of failure and accepting failure as a part of progress is so important for our children, all of our children, to understand that failure is a part of progress. We fail. Everybody fails. And when you fail, you learn something and you try again and you get better and that you can really develop these these talents and the ability. So if you're interested in something, even if maybe it's hard for you, that doesn't mean that you're excluded from that community. It means that you can engage and you can work and you can get better. I I really think that that is such an important point because I think sometimes, particularly with kids, we try to under emphasize failure. We think, oh, you know, we want to just make them feel better about themselves and build them up. But we need to realize this sense of growing and development is so much a part of that. So for particularly for girls, how mm-hmm. how would you recommend that adults go about this? Mm-hmm. Particularly if a girl shows an aptitude for science mm-hmm. or is interested in science or math, what can we do to help make sure that that doesn't happen, that they don't lose that interest or they they feel empowered to move forward with that? Yeah. Well, I think um, it's a great question. And if we knew the answer, (laughs) (laughs) we'd have more women in science. We'd have more women in science, you know. But um, I think think actually acknowledging failure and saying, hey, you know what? You didn't do well this time, but that doesn't mean that you're not smart. It doesn't mean that you are a failure. It just means that this particular thing that you did didn't work quite right. And you think of someone like, I think Thomas Edison said, I haven't I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways it didn't work, you know, um, and that's that's part of science. Like like I, I mentioned earlier, just the the investigation of the world around you, like most of what scientists do doesn't work. Ultimately, we fail a lot. And then every once in a while we do something and it's really great and it works and we think, wow, we learned something. And I think that we just have to um build in that sort of that failure is an acceptable thing and and that it's good even because it leads us to to improvement. Um, I think that that's really important. And then the other thing, I think, if you have a girl that's interested in science, just don't discourage her. Um, you know, actually, if, if somebody says, yeah, I'm interested in science, well, yeah, find the chemistry summer camp or go to the museum or, you know, go to the local university or do the science fair. So many things that you can do that are that are going to encourage that. And um they do have some evidence also that women as, as undergraduates even don't go on into graduate 
careers into graduate degrees because they're not specifically encouraged to do so. And so they think because, well, because my advisor didn't tell me, oh, I should go into graduate school, I must not be smart enough. They would have told me if I were smart enough to go to go to graduate school. And and that's not true, uh, obviously, right? Um, but but it, girls tend to internalize that more uh, than boys do. So I think just um, praising effort Praising learning, praising growth as opposed to an outcome is really important. And then I think just just stay in tune with what your daughters are talking about and thinking about and, and try and help support what their interests are. I think that that just support and being tuned in is is so important and it makes a makes a huge difference. Have you found this to be the case in your own personal experience that that your parents were tuned in and mm-hmm. what what did they do right to yeah. to help you be the amazing scientist that you are today? Yeah. There was just an understanding that we were going to go to college. Uh, there was never an if you go to college, it was always when you go to college. You know, from a young age, I remember my mom bought me like a Harvard sweatshirt when I was like eight. And, um, you know, we just it was it was just part of the conversation like that, that higher education is a thing that you're going to do. And and then I think I was really lucky as an undergraduate. I actually had a female mentor. My undergraduate advisor was a woman, a chemistry professor. Um And she, you know, I just thought I could do whatever I wanted to do. I never felt like there were any limitations. And, you know, different environments are going to produce different feelings, I suppose. Being in contact with her and knowing that she was a successful woman in science and had a family and was happy and, um, you know, also had a great career and was doing interesting research. Uh, that was that was a great example to me. And some people will be lucky enough to have that situation, and some people aren't. Unfortunately, you know, when when they go to college, maybe there aren't female professors in in the engineering department or in the in the chemistry department. And so um, that I think that can be difficult. It's really important that we have those role models that help girls realize that there aren't limitations to what they can do. And that is the perfect note to end on. Just breaking down these limitations of these societal constructs that really aren't true is the step forward. So hopefully our discussion today will open up some our listeners' ideas to what they can do to, to break down those barriers and yeah. make no limitations for boys and girls in science. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Rachel Wadham talking with Rebecca Sansom of the BYU Chemistry Department about how to encourage girls who have an interest in science to stay with it. Next, Teresa Love joins Rachel on Worlds Awaiting to talk about sets, lighting, costumes, and even puppets. Live theater is wonderful storytelling for children. Teresa Love has been working as a drama theater specialist for over 30 years and currently teaches at BYU in the Theater and Media Arts Department. She also instructs classroom teachers about the value of drama in elementary schools. Teresa recently directed and wrote the play Water Sings Blue with BYU's Theater for Young Audiences, known as The Young Company. The play is based on Kate Coombs' award-winning poetry book about the ocean. Here's Rachel and Teresa Love. We have Teresa in studio today. Welcome, Teresa. Hi, Rachel. We are so excited to talk a little bit about theater and drama and, and the extra stuff that that has to happen. I mean, I'm very attuned to story and the written word, but when you talk about drama, when you talk about theater and plays, it's more than the written word. It's the it's the costumes and the sets and and you know the 
the objects that are all there. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, why is that stuff necessary or why is it not necessary for certain plays? What does it add to help us tell these stories? Well, you're right. Sometimes it's not necessary. All you need is an actor in a plain space and some, you know, people to watch and you can go from there. But, oh, it's so much more fun to have people come to your play box, you know, to your sandbox and play with you. And that's what theater is. We're collaborators. We work together. And we also, as we train or as we, in our experience, we begin to notice how a certain swish of a red skirt can punctuate a line or the the way the lights soften the atmosphere just right so it helps the actors really communicate. Once we, once we sort of get a vision that, you know, oh, you know what, if we had this, it would be even better, um, we, we begin to look to other people to, to help us out <laughs> and to see if they can catch our vision. And that's interesting, particularly when you're looking at this from, as a director, which you'd often do. How do you see that kind of holistically when you're looking at the words and, and the costumes and all of that? What, what does that process look like as you're looking at it as a director? I mean, it's a very messy process. And sometimes you'll have, you know, there are people who work with the same, you know, director and the same writer and the same hairstylist and the same everything because they get their language going, you know, that they understand how to do it. Um, Same way with, you know, for a while I had a certain stable of actors I worked with in L.A. because I could say, well, if you go and they'll go, yeah, I know what you mean. (laughs) Um, So a lot of it's just that communication thing and trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out. And eventually, hopefully, you do. The director's job is to keep it all on track so things don't go flying off and um, that stays with a vision that not only the, the, the playwright probably has and that the director's interpreting, but that the whole company is able to come together and to understand together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, is there something different, particularly you work a lot with – theater for young audiences. So do you approach it any differently when you're doing something for a young audience? Is is there a different sense that children will bring to this costume or set or other things that you wouldn't expect in an adult audience? Yes. Sometimes it depends on their age developmentally. But, you know, there's nothing that drives me crazier than going into a theater for young audiences um, play. And it's all um, red and blue and, you know, very bright colors because kids like bright colors. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's children are people. They, they're, they're sensitive. You may need to make it a little bit um, more obvious for them so that they can go, oh, I, I see. Um, Brian Way, who is a British dramatist who um, – did pioneering work in theater for young audiences as well as the drama for young for young people said he always treats his audiences like they are uh, the most intelligent alien that is coming to visit earth and they're a little bit hard of hearing and a little bit hard of seeing but otherwise they're going to get everything so you just make things just a little bit more obvious for them so that they can make they can their synapses can connect <laughs> and they'll get it so i 
don't know if you and this goes to parents. If you walk in and a and a set is all brown, don't be all upset. Go, why is it brown? How is this going to hold the story or the or the you know why why did they make these decisions? And maybe ask your kids, why do you think it's all brown in here? And the kids will probably tell you. <laughs> <laughs> they probably will. I know kids are very intelligent in that way. But one of the things I like about this kind of extra things that go on with theater is they add so much to the creativity. And I know uh, you did a play recently uh, based on The Selfish Giant where you use puppetry as kind of an extra added fabulousness to to tell the story. So I think oftentimes these extra things do part of the storytelling. Right. As and I, well. I, I nearly seem incapable of writing a play without a puppet in it. It, it always seems to, to show up. Um, you know, we are fascinated with puppets in such a way that makes me think that as human beings, we really do appreciate life. And when we see an inanimate object animated, we are just stunned about how beautiful life is or how strange it is or how funny it is or just how how wrenching it is and so um so that's why I like to use puppetry because sometimes we'll get confused when we're just looking at human beings because we are who we are but when you put it in a puppet then we all look at it in another way and there is a respect and a mm, just, yeah, it's magic, I know. I mean, that sounds cliche, but it is a magical experience when a fine puppeteer tries to capture this beautiful thing, this mysterious thing that we call life. And children are not immune to that. And in other cultures, puppetry is not relegated to children. Um, it's really, it's it's a, you know, an adult art form as well as, as for, you know, families. Um, but children are sensitive souls, believe it or not, and they can get salty. You don't always have to be screaming around, you know, eating Fruit Loops to get a child's attention. <laughs> it's true. And I, I love that sense of that puppetry has a subtlety to it. And I think sometimes when we associate things with children, we kind of look at them without subtlety. Right. But, but there's so much that that particular dramatic art form can bring to the stage. So how do you feel that that really adds to, to what you're telling the story? Why would you use a puppet over a human being? What, what does it add? Well, it adds that. It adds extra dimension. It adds a point of concentration and focus. Um, you'll look at it in a different way. Your brain has to, you know, connect in different ways to understand what's going on. And that's, you know, for children, that's brain candy. To get to another place in their brain that they haven't been before, Woohoo! that's really interesting. That is engagement. Um, and so people make the mistake and think that the puppetry is for children, but it's for, it's for you know, fine puppetry can engage everyone. So um, so sometimes when I want to pay particular attention to something, then it's going to be a puppet. And, f- for example, in Selfish Giant, and the producers and I agreed with this, the, the child that eventually becomes the, the, you know, the Christ figure in that story, in that Oscar Wilde story, it was a puppet. It wasn't – and we had regular children. We had live children and puppet children in that because we wanted you to especially look – at that particular child because it was really important. 
I think that's a great way to show that that focus is so important. You, but you've mentioned several times this idea of fine puppetry, and <laughs> and I know I know I agree because I I have seen bad puppetry and I've seen fine puppetry. But I think the same goes for all theater. There's this sense of fine. So, you know, it's it's great to experience stuff that isn't as fine. But how do we as parents know what is fine? How do we pick those? really quintessential, beautiful examples to help our children engage in this fineness when it's professional and beautifully done? Right. That's a that's a great question. It's not easy. There's not a common sense, uh, you know, website uh, like there is for books and videos and films for, for live theater. Um, the best way I've found is to Look at your fine professional companies. If your most professional companies have an outreach, and they um, aren't going to uh, sully their reputation by having, you know, amateur stuff go out from their from their brand, right? So the professional companies look look there, and and it's very easy to do that with on websites now. Um, most universities um, will who are serious about theater for young audiences. If they they'll have an outreach, and they're also going to do their very best to to try and not have schlock go out, right? Because because why would they do that? Um, some and you know I don't want to say, look, you know, circus, you know, circus is a is a wonderful place to go. Vaudeville is a wonderful place to go. It doesn't have to be, you know, just theater for young audiences. There's lots of theatrical work. Look for quality. Look for quality, just like you would look for a book. Ask experts. Ask people you trust. Um, call up Rachel Wadham. <laughs> <laughs> or Teresa Love. That's right. <laughs> but I think, uh, I, really, I think that's an important thing to look at is, you know, somebody somebody you trust and or maybe even go and see the production before you take your children. Right. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. I, I know it costs a little bit more money, but honestly, it, it's you, – you know, give them the best food most of the time. Every once in a while you let them have, you know, a candy bar and stuff like that. Every once in a while they can have a, you know, uh, an experience that's just fun with theater and it isn't, you know – Oh, high in the sky. But don't let that be the only thing. You know, let them have the stuff that true theater artists have just sweat blood and tears for in order to prepare for that particular audience, which is the best audience in the world. And I think that's a perfect way to end. Thank you, Teresa, for helping us see theater in a new light today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Teresa loved talking with Rachel about the importance of taking our children to live theater. We finish up the show today with three children, Josh, Brooke, and Kira, who talk to me about some of their favorite books. I like to read fantasy, and in the fantasy world, there kind of are like no limits on what could happen. I like dystopian kind of books. And what is dystopian? Um, it's sort of futuristic and, like, most of the time it's after a big war and the world's starting over again. Interesting. Is that like a Hunger Games or yes, that it, kind of Hunger thing? Yes, Hunger Games is dystopian. The kind of books that I like to read are sports, sports books like with facts. And I also have a book at home. It's called The Big Book of Who. And it's like uh, who is known for like the most dunks or like most three-pointers or anything, like touchdowns in a season or a career. And then uh, what will happen mainly like sometimes 
my family and ask me something, and then I'll say the answer, like, how do you know that? Then I also like uh, like mystery books, you know, like trying the kids or just any other book when people try and solve mysteries. And I also like scary books, how, like, you know, like it's you on the edge of your sea, and then, you know, you're, like, totally guessing. So, yeah, I like those books. So tell me the title of the book you've chosen today. It's Robin McKinley's Beauty. The book that I brought, it's called The House on Hackman's Hill by Joan Lowry Nixon. My book is Wings of Fire, The Dragon at Prophecy. The first series is five books, and then there are three other books that are another series, but it continues on like it says book six and seven and eight. I'm on the eighth. What do you like about the book? I like how it sticks to the main, like, fairy tale version, other than how other ones are way different. Some books you'll start reading like, okay, this is okay, but then when it's like a cliffhanger or something like that, like you just keep on reading. And then, yeah, like in this book it shows that like maybe the last page it reveals uh, like most of the ending and how it all comes together. And that's why I like those books. I like how it um, is about dragons and it has a lot of plot twists and... It's really interesting. Are there any particular characters in it that you like the best? Mm, I kind of like Sunny. She's one of the Dragonettes of Destiny. She's a sandwing, but she doesn't look like other sandwings do. Like, they have a poisonous tail, and she doesn't, and she's a lot smaller. And instead of having, like, a desert sandy color, she's golden. So, Does it have a good ending? I mean, do you kind of feel yeah. relief at the end? See, that's good, isn't it? I like the last few pages. It's really nice because it's like when the beast is like transforming and she's like there's never been a mirror in the castle and there's a mirror and so she finally sees herself and she's transformed into a really pretty person. Reading is wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of takes you someplace else, doesn't it? I like those worlds. It's wonderful. Three children reviewing their book favorites. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org. <laughs>